You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 85 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And once again, we have an episode largely dominated by news related to coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, as you might expect. But we do have a number of other articles too. If you have any questions about coronavirus and GDPR or COVID-19 and GDPR, then feel free to drop us an email to corona at insurety.co.uk. That's C-O-R-O-N-A at E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. And we'll do our best to answer them for you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. But before you do that, please do check back into the episodes 82, 83 and 84 of the GDPR Weekly Show, where we have covered quite a number of the frequently asked questions relating to GDPR and coronavirus. So, what do we have coming up for you in this week's episode? Well, we begin with a recommended small change to visitors' books, in, or rather the data you collect from visitors, now that Corona COVID-19 is getting more prevalent. We then look at the latest GDPR-related advice about coronavirus and COVID-19 from both the UK Information Commissioner's Office and from their Irish equivalent. We then have news that the UK government is working on a COVID-19 contact tracking app. So we have some news on that for you and what's involved with that. And then we have news from a company called Ocasta who've launched a free GDPR compliant scanning application for iOS devices, so for iPhones or iPads. And it's quite a neat piece of software, quite an easy application because it doesn't store the scan documents on the cloud anywhere. It just stores them locally on the device and as soon as that the, the files have been sent to the recipient, so you can email them on to someone, then as soon as you've done that it deletes them off of your device. We then have news that Morrison's, the supermarket who mounted a uh, appeal in the Supreme Court against a class action brought by victims of a data breach have been successful in winning their appeal. So you might want to take a listen to that. Um, we then have news of a second data breach at Marriott Hotels, which follows on from their earlier data breach, which saw them fined £99 million by the UK Information Commissioner's Office, they've now had a second data breach. And finally, this week, we have news of a data breach in Malta. So, hopefully something there of interest to you. I hope you find the programme useful and informative. And as always, if you have any feedback, please do send it to us by emailing podcasts at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. We do read every single piece of feedback that you send in to us, and wherever we can, we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the show but unfortunately due to the volume that we receive we don't have time to reply to each piece of correspondence individually you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith budden we begin this week with some thoughts on some slight changes to the information that you keep in your visitors book or more precisely we would recommend that this information is not actually kept in your visitor's book, but as a separate sheet. Um, 
connected with your visitors book because you need to ask for the person's specific consent to hold this information but what we're recommending is that when the visitor comes to your office as well as the information you normally gather when you keep in your visitors book that you also ask them for either a telephone number or an email address that you can contact them on and as I say it's important that you seek their consent to hold that additional information and also I would suggest that you put onto that sheet that you will only hold this information for the length of time that the um, coronavirus outbreak continues in your country. The reason for keeping this additional information is telephone number and email address obviously on that sheet you'd also need to take the person's name and the date they visited you is that should one of your employees go sick with the coronavirus you do have an obligation under the vital interests of gdpr to notify anyone who may have come into contact with that person and of course that's reasonably easy to do with your own employees but not so easy to do with visitors to your premises so by keeping this additional information it means that you are maintaining a way that you can update that person that you have had coronavirus on your premises and that they should take the necessary steps as recommended by the government. So I say, make sure you hold consent for that information. Make sure that your document clearly specifies that you will only keep it for the length of time that the coronavirus outbreak exists in your country. And of course, make sure that you have a procedure in place within your data retention policies to say that you will actually physically delete or destroy those pieces of information once the coronavirus outbreak is over. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Both the UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, and the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, have issued additional guidance this week for companies regarding data subject access requests. Both authorities have indicated that they understand that resources, whether finances or people, may well be diverted away from usual compliance with information governance work whilst the coronavirus COVID-19 situation is in progress. And they've now clearly indicated that they will not be penalising organisations that prioritise other areas or adapt their usual approach to manage operations during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with subject access requests. What it does mean is that the regulator will be more lenient given their circumstances. The ICO went on to point out that while authorities cannot extend statutory timescales for responding to requests from individuals, since they're set down in law and GDPR and indeed in the UK Data Protection Act 2018, they recognise that unavoidable delays may arise as a direct result of the impacts of COVID-19. What they are recommending is that companies advise the people making requests for subject access requests through your own communication channels that there may be understandable delays when making those responses to the information rights requests during the COVID-19 pandemic. While the authorities have signalled in general terms they will not be looking to take action against data controllers or data processors that fail to deal with data subject rights requests within the normal required timescales as a result of COVID-19, we would like to re-emphasise that it doesn't mean that you just don't need to respond to them at all. You still need to respond to them in the best time that you can, but do put a notice on your website perhaps that just says that you may not be able to deal with them in the required 30 days in the present situation and that you ask for 
the data subject's forbearance on that in allowing you some extra time. Now, of course, the GDPR does already provide for an extension of two months to respond to a request where necessary, taking into account the complexity and number of requests. The Irish DPC in particular has addressed this by saying that any organisation experiencing difficulties in responding to requests should, where possible, communicate with the individuals concerned about the handling of their request, including any extension to the period for responding and the reasons for the delay in responding. Organisations experiencing difficulties in actioning requests should also consider where it's possible to respond to requests in stages. For example, an organisation whose staff are working remotely may have difficulties in accessing hard copy records. In this case, it may be possible to provide the requester with their electronic records within the 30 days and with a note that the hard copies will be provided at a later stage when you physically yourselves have regained access to your hard copy records. The DPC also recommends that companies should consider whether they can respond to requests in stages and communicate clearly with individuals and maintain records of actions they are taking. For the ICO, the ICO said that if the organisation is genuinely trying its best, then they are likely to take a lenient approach. Do bear in mind, however, that of course that the responses of regulators in other jurisdictions may vary. So the general guidance here, I think, is to say respond promptly to requests from individuals, even if only to say that the request has been received and will be dealt with as soon as possible in the circumstances. It's important that you keep the data subjects making the request or their third parties, where they're using a third party, up to date where necessary and be transparent at all times. It's important as well to say that this leniency from the ICO and the DPC only extends to data subject access requests. All the other parts of GDPR you still have to keep make sure you're on top of just as much as you always would. And indeed, we recommend that you refer back to the previous two or three weeks episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show where we've discussed various important items, particularly with regard to your employees working at home. The other area that's been clarified this week is the whole issue of sharing data with the government. As confirmed by the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, and the European Data Protection Supervisor, the EDPS, companies can share anonymous data with governments to fight the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic, since anonymous data falls outside of the EU data protection laws, outside of GDPR. Companies should note, though, that anonymisation can be a very demanding process as the threshold to qualify data as anonymous in the EU is very high. It may require more than just removing phone and device identification numbers. And the preferred way of doing it is by aggregating data where you can, but obviously this might be difficult where you only have a small number of employees. The processing of any telecommunications data, such as location data from mobile devices, is subject to the privacy directive. Location data can be used only when it's made anonymous or with the individual's consent. But this may change in the next week or two because it's possible that the EU countries will introduce legislative measures to allow you to provide this information without anonymising it in the grounds of safeguarding public security. But it's important to stress that that legislation is not currently in place. It's just rumoured to be being considered by various bodies, including here in the UK. With regards to the actual sharing of health data, while health data is a special category and therefore subject to strict requirements, it's not always necessary to have consent. According to the EDPB, companies may process employees' health data for reasons of substantial public interest in the area of public health 
or to protect an individual's right to interest. Where a company is acting on the directions of public health authorities to share data, it is likely that Article 61C, Article 921, GDPR and Section 53 of the Data Protection Act 2018 will permit the processing of the personal data, including health data, as necessary for compliance with the legal obligation to which the company is itself subject. It would be open to the company to ask the authority in question to identify the particular piece of legislation which requires them to share the data. In fact, we would recommend that you do that and you keep a record of that. So if in future there's any question over why you shared a particular piece of data with uh, central government, or local government indeed, then you have some justification as to why you did so. In Ireland, it's likely that this may well come under the Irish Infectious Diseases Regulation 1981. It's also permissible to possess personal data to protect the vital interests of an individual data subject or other persons where necessary. This would typically cut in where the person, the data subject, was themselves now physically or legally incapable of giving their consent. For example, if someone has unfortunately been admitted to hospital and is now on a ventilator then frankly they're not going to be able to give you consent so you would still be able to release that information on the basis of vital interest but as we said earlier wherever possible please try and anonymize the data when sharing twelve id 19 data with governments organizations must have appropriate lawful grounds and follow gdpr principles and bear the following in mind First, think about fairness and lawfulness. As well as identifying the appropriate legal basis for processing personal data, companies must ensure that they adhere to the principles of data protection. It is important that you keep full records of what you're doing, that you keep records of the actions that you've taken, the lawful grounds that you're using to justify those actions, and the effort that you've made to obtain consent from the individual concerned. Then you need to think about transparency. GDPR obligations require that employees be informed in a transparent manner about any sharing of data with public health authorities. So it's important that you are transparent about that, whether that's just an email that you send around to staff saying that you've had a request from the Department of Health to share this information and you're going to do so. That's probably actually fine, but what is important is that you do make sure that you tell your employees what you're about to do. And crucially also is, as we said earlier, making the data as anonymous as you can and as minimised as you can. So unless you're specifically asked by government about a named individual, then try to avoid giving any information just about one single individual person. Although, of course, that may be difficult if that is the only person who is suffering from coronavirus in your organisation. And finally, uh, companies that receive a request from the government entity for personal data about residents of the country in question should feel confident in responding without trying to second-guess what the government wants the information for. It is extremely unlikely that any EU data protection authority would sanction a private organisation for responding to a request for personal data from a bona fide government entity in the relevant country, so organisations entitled to assume that their own government entities are acting lawfully. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It is understood that the UK government is getting ready to release a phone app um, which will alert people if they come too close to someone who has tested positive for 12ID19. This story was originally broken by Sky News on Tuesday this week. It is understood that the contact tracking application 
which will operate on an opt-in basis, will be released either just before or just after the current UK lockdown is lifted. And this has been according to several people with close knowledge of the project. It's understood that NHS bosses hope the app will attract more than 50% of the population as large numbers of people using it together will be necessary for it to work effectively. The existence of the app, which was first revealed by Health Service Journal, has been known for some time, but key technical details have only recently been agreed by NHS X, the NHS England Innovation Unit leading the project. The app will detect other phones in close vicinity using short-range Bluetooth signals, then store a record of those contacts on the device, the sources say. If someone tests positive for COVID-19, they will be able to upload those contacts who can then be alerted after a suitable delay to avoid accidentally identifying any individual via the app. This method means data is not sent regularly to a central authority, potentially easing concerns around privacy and GDPR, which NHSX fears may have slowed adoption of the app. NHSX plans to appoint an ethics board to oversee the project with board members to be identified in the coming weeks. However, privacy campaigners have questioned whether any board of this kind would be truly independent and raised concerns about the app's safeguards. Last week, a group of responsible technologists published an open letter to the CEO of NHSX and the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, warning that location and contact tracking technology could be used as a means of social control. Sky News understands this letter was published in response to the early phase of development of the app, which was originally intended to be used during the containment phase of the government's response to the pandemic. One source who witnessed work on the app during this period described it as a hot mess, run by a hodgepodge of suppliers and contractors, with no clear voices in the room speaking to the privacy invitations of the technology they were using. Another said the initial brief was to take what was going on around the world and say, what's the British version of that? But it didn't really feel like that was happening. NHSX insiders argue that this was an inevitable consequence of a team having to work at breakneck speed during a period when the strategy in Downing Street was itself changing rapidly. In order to reassure the privacy community, NHSX held an online meeting yesterday with a group of non-government organisations, including some of the signatories of the open letter. We could be using tech to augment and improve human processes rather than or as well as creating a shiny new app, one person told Sky News. That wasn't something discussed on the call. Yet, although attendees praised the unit's openness to scrutiny, some were concerned that major questions, such as how to deal with a large number of over 55s who don't have smartphones, were still not yet answered, which could in themselves hamper the effectiveness of the project. In recent weeks, development of the app has been taken over by Pivotal, a subsidiary of American software giant VMware, which has focused on building an app that works using Bluetooth. This is the second big American firm to be handed a significant NHS contract after NHSX had hired controversial Silicon Valley giant Palantir to build a data store in order to track the movement of critical staff and materials around the health and social care system. Using smartphones for contract chasing has become commonplace across the world to different degrees of invasiveness. The UK version is understood to be following the example set by Trace Together, a Bluetooth-powered app used in Singapore, which has been downloaded more than 800,000 times and helped the city-state of Singapore substantially suppress its coronavirus outbreak. The Irish government is understood to be building an app with similar functions. By contrast, South Korea broadcast details of infected people's age, gender and most recent location, 21 with 100 metres via text message. Asked about this by the Parliament's House and Social Care Committee, Professor Chris Whitty 
the Chief Medical Officer for England, said such a system could be used to attack people, for instance, on social media. Professor Whitty told the committee, As a doctor, I am very against giving any patient identifiable information, and for that reason we should also be careful, so I am not in favour of going down the street level, or you are within 100 metres of a coronavirus sufferer. That is the wrong approach for this country. Sky News revealed earlier this month that Mobile Network 02 was working with the government to track movement of people using anonymised smartphone location data. Following on from that, across Europe as a whole, a European coalition of technicians and scientists drawn from at least eight countries and led by Germany's Fraunhofer Heinrich Hertz Institute for Telecoms, HHI, is working on contact tracing proximity technology for COVID-19 that's designed to comply with the region's strict privacy rules. Chinese-style individual-level location tracking of people by states via their smartphone, even for a public health purpose, is hard to conceive in Europe. Europe, and especially with GDPR, has a good history of legal protection for individual privacy. However, the coronavirus pandemic is applying pressure to the region's data protection model, as governments turn to data and mobile technologies to seek help with tracking the spread of the virus, supporting their public health response and mitigating wider social and economic impacts. The effect of such apps is unclear, but the demand and for the tech and data to fuel such efforts is coming from everywhere. The newly unveiled Pan-European Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracking, PEPPPT, project, is a response to the coronavirus pandemic generating a huge spike in demand for citizens' data that's intended to offer not just another app, but what's described as a fully privacy-preserving approach to COVID-19 contact tracing. The core idea is to leverage smartphone technology to help disrupt the next wave of infections by notifying individuals who come into close contact with a previously infected person via the proxy of their smartphones and been near enough to carry out a Bluetooth handshake. So far, so good. But the coalition behind the effort wants to steer developments in such a way that the EU response to COVID-19 doesn't drift towards China-style state surveillance of citizens. While for the moment strict quarantine measures remain in place across much of Europe, there may be less imperative for governments to rip up their best practice rulebook to intrude on citizens' privacy, given that the majority of people right across Europe are currently under lockdowns that are, on the whole, keeping them at home. But the looming question, which all the uh, legislators across Europe are having to question and raise with themselves is what happens when the lockdowns are lifted. Contact tracing is a way of a chance to offer interventions that can break any new infection chain are being touted as a key component of preventing a second wave of coronavirus infections by some. And many people, as we've already mentioned, are looking towards Singapore's Trace Together app. Singapore, it has to be said, does appear to have had some success in keeping a second wave of infections at bay via an aggressive testing and contact tracing regime. But it has to be said that Singapore is a small city island with a population of less than 6 million people, whereas the EU, for example, is a trading block of 27 different nations whose collective population exceeds 500 million people. Also, it seems unlikely that Europe is going to have a single tra- coronavirus tracing app Already there were patchwork of apps being developed. Hence the people behind PPPPT are offering a set of standards, technology and services to countries and developers to plug into to get a standardised COVID-19 contact tracing approach up and running across the EU. 
The other very European flavoured piece here is privacy and privacy law. Enforcement of data protection, anonymisation, GDPR, compliance and security are all baked into PPPPT. The idea is to make the technology available to as many countries, managers of infectious diseases, responses and developers as quickly and easily as possible. The technical mechanisms and standards provided by PPPPT fully protect privacy and leverage the possibilities and features of digital technology to maximise speed and real-time capability of any national pandemic response. Hans Christian Boos, one of the project's co-initiators and the founder of an artificial intelligence company called Arago, discussed the initiative with German newspaper Der Spiegel, telling that we collect no location data, no movement profiles, no contact information and no identifiable features of the end devices. The newspaper reports PPPPT's approach means that apps aligning to this standard would generate only temporary IDs to avoid individuals being identified. Two or more smartphones running an app that uses the tech and have Bluetooth enabled when they come into proximity will exchange their respective IDs, saving them locally on the device in an encrypted form. The Spiegel goes on to say that a user of the app would subsequently be diagnosed with coronavirus. Their doctor would be able to ask them to transfer the contact list to a central server. The doctor would then be able to use the system to warn affected IDs that they had had contact with a person who had since been diagnosed with coronavirus, meaning those at-risk individuals could be proactively tested and or decide to self-isolate. On its website, PPPPT explains the approach in the following way. It says there are two modes. Mode 1 is that if a user is not tested or is tested negative, the anonymous proximity history remains encrypted on the user's phone and cannot be viewed or transmitted by anybody. At any point in time, only the proximity history that could be relevant for virus transmission is saved and earlier history is continuously deleted. In mode 2, if the user of phone A has been confirmed to be corona positive, the house authorities will contact user A and provide a TAN code to the user that ensures potential malware to not inject incorrect infection information into the PPPT system. The user will use this TAN code to voluntarily provide information to the national service that permits the notification of PPPT apps recorded in the proximity history and hence potentially infected. Since this history contains anonymous identifiers, neither person would be aware of the other person's identity. However, all is not totally clear yet because Europe's lead data regulator, the EDPS, recently made a point of tweeting to warn a MEP, a member of the European Parliament, against the legality of applying Singapore-style Bluetooth-powered contact tracing in the EU, saying, please be cautious comparing Singapore examples with the European situation. Remember, Singapore has a very specific legal regime on the identification of device holders. A spokesman for EDPS said it's in contact with data protection agencies of the member states involved in the PEPPPT project, to collect relevant information. It's understood that PPPPT's international team consists of more than 130 members working across more than seven European countries and includes scientists, technologists and experts from well-known research institutions and companies. The results of the team's work will be owned by non-profit organisations so that technology and standards will be available to all. Their priorities are the well-being of world citizens today and the development of tools to limit the impact of future pandemics all while confirming to European data standards. PPPPT says its technology-focused efforts are being financed through donations. There seems to be a good appetite for this sort of app because here in the UK, 
an app called the C19 COVID symptom tracker has now had some 750,000 downloads. The app is now the third most popular app overall in the UK on the Apple App Store and number one in the medical category. And so it would seem that the public are quite willing to share this information if it means that overall the virus pandemic can be contained and ultimately beaten. And so we're fairly certain that this is something that we'll need to come back to in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, and we will, of course, do so when there's anything substantial to report. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. There's been some concern over just how long the coronavirus can survive on paper documents and also of course there's a whole issue of dealing with paper documents with more employees working at home and so a new free app has been released to enable documents to be easily scanned and then emailed on or transmitted through to other systems and the app is from a company called Ocasta and Ocasta are an agency on a mission to transform how people work through behavioural changing apps and technology. They've responded to the COVID-19 pandemic by offering a free scanning app to anyone who needs it. The app takes away the need to handle customer paper where coronavirus can live for up to 24 hours and they're keen to stress that the app is 100% GDPR compliant. It's available on the App Store now and I cast to say it's perfect for solicitors, healthcare workers, engineers, retailers and finance companies amongst others. Um, we would stress at this point that we have only limited experience of using this app ourselves, but it does appear to work well. And also stress that we have no connection financially or otherwise with Ocasta. So to quote from Ocasta's own documentation, Ocasta say reduce the spread of COVID-19 and keep GDPR compliant with Ocasta's free scanning app which has just been launched. The Scan app is available on iOS and can be downloaded from the Apple App Store today. Being an agency who specialises in employee technology, Ocasta were interested in how they could help create a safer workplace for everyone during the current crisis. Given that the virus is expected to live on paper and cardboard for up to 24 hours, they knew that workplaces would want to minimise their contact with paper documents. This led them to launch a free version of Oplift Scan, the GDPR-compliant scanning application. Unlike other apps, Oplift Scan does not store the scans in the app or the cloud, helping comply with data protection requirements and GDPR. Users can simply scan items such as customer contracts, proof of residence or proof of sign-off, and then once it's sent to the relevant place, the article is wiped from the device. Ocasta say that the, the app is perfect for law firms whose staff are now working from home and these are compliant ways to scan paperwork or get files from customers. Healthcare workers can use it for handling patient paperwork, Retailers may need to take copies of customer documents when offering finance, for example, and want to minimise contact with customers to use the app. As can field sales teams who would like to quickly capture signed contracts, or engineers who need to have proof of sign-off by the customer. So if you're interested in the app, as we say, it's available from the App Store, or you can contact Ocasta directly, either via their website at www.ocasta.com, that's O-C-A-S-T-A.com, or via the email address of ben, B-E-N, at ocasta, O-C-A-S-T-A, dot com. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
If you've been a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show for a while, then you may remember that back in episode 11, we mentioned about a data breach at Morrison's Supermarkets. And then in episode 65, we told you that Morrison's had appealed the judgment in that case and we're going to the Supreme Court. The court has now concluded its proceedings and has ruled that Morrison should not be held liable for the criminal act of an employee with a grudge who leaked the payroll data of about 100,000 members of Morrison's staff. The supermarket group Morrison's brought a Supreme Court challenge in an attempt to overturn previous judgments which had given the go-ahead for compensation claims by thousands of Morrison's employees whose personal details were posted on the internet. A panel of five justices unanimously ruled on Wednesday this week that Morrison's was not vicariously liable for the actions of Andrew Skelton, who had disclosed staff information online and also sent it to various newspapers. Announcing the decision via live stream, the court's president, Lord Reid, said Skelton had leaked the data because of a grudge after he was given a verbal warning following disciplinary proceedings. The judge said employers could only be held liable for the actions of employees if they were closely connected with their duties at work. He said in the Morrison's case, Skelton was not engaged in furthering Morrison's business when he committed the wrongdoing in question. On the contrary, he was pursuing a personal vendetta, seeking revenge for the disciplinary proceedings a month earlier. In the circumstances applying the established approach of cases of this kind, his employer is not vicariously liable. A statement issued by Morrison's after the ruling said, The theft of data happened because of a single employee with legitimate authority to hold the data also held a secret and wholly unreasonable grudge against Morrison's and wanted to hurt the company and our colleagues. We are pleased that the Supreme Court has agreed that Morrison should not be held vicariously liable for his actions when he was acting alone to his own criminal plan and he's been found guilty of this crime and spent time in jail. A court has already found that Morrison's was not responsible for any direct wrongdoing in respect of this data theft. To give a bit of background, in July 2015, Skelton was found guilty at Bradford Crown Court of Ford, securing unauthorised access to computer material and disclosing personal data, and was jailed for eight years. Nick McAleenan, a partner and data rights specialist lawyer for JMW Solicitors, who represented a group of 9,000 claimants in the landmark class action against Morrison's, said, My clients entrusted their personal information to their employer, Morrison's, in good faith. When their information was subsequently uploaded to the internet by a fellow employee, it caused an enormous amount of upset and distress to tens of thousands of people. The Supreme Court's decision now places my clients, the backbone of Morrison's business, in the position of having no legal avenue remaining to challenge what happened to them. My clients are of course hugely disappointed by the decision, which contradicts two earlier unanimous findings in their favour. The decision overturns previous rulings in the High Court and Court of Appeal, which held that Morrison's was vicariously liable for Stoughton's actions. Now doubtless other employers, other companies will be rubbing their hands in glee at this, and thinking that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's anything but the sort. Obviously, each case is measured on its individual merits, and it should be remembered that this case, the data breach itself, happened before GDPR came into being. And if it was a current breach, then the ruling could well have been very different. So our advice is that whilst obviously this is good news for Morrison's and bad news for its employees who brought the class action, it shouldn't be viewed as setting a precedent for any cases in the future which affect data after the date that GDPR came into force. 
You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In what are already troubled times for the travel industry, Marriott Hotels had a second data breach this week where they revealed the personal information of some 5.2 million guests. This is Marriott's second data breach in two years and they got a penalty from the UK ICO of £99 million for their previous data breach and so they can expect, I would think, at least the same sort of level of penalty this time at a time when probably they are ill-placed to afford it. So what's happened in this case is that personal information of 5.2 million Marriott guests has been illegally accessed online in the group's second major data breach. The firm revealed on Tuesday that the information taken may have included names, phone numbers, birthdays, loyalty information and room preferences. Marriott said they'd spotted an unexpected amount of guest information had been accessed at the end of February using login credentials of two employees at a franchise property. However, those logins have since been disabled while the group assists authorities with their investigations to track down the digital thieves. The company believes that the activity started in mid-January 2020, Marriott said in a statement. Upon discovery, the company confirmed the login credentials had been disabled, immediately began an investigation, implemented heightened monitoring and arranged resources to inform and assist guests who had been affected. Marriott also notified relevant authorities and is supporting their investigations. Indeed, the ICO here in the UK has confirmed that they've been notified. The data security incident has affected uh, hotels, including the Trump Turnbury in Ayrshire, as well as London's Park Lane Sheraton Grand, the Westbury Mayfair and Le Meridien Piccadilly. The recent data breach, according to Marriott, did not seem to include credit card information, passport numbers or driver's licence information. Marriott said it is offering affected guests free enrolment in a personal information monitoring service for up to one year. In a statement, the company said that Marriott also remains committed to further strengthening its protections to detect and remediate incidents such as this in the future. The group also noticed that it has insurance, including cyber insurance, commensurate with its size and nature of its operations, and the company is working with its insurers to assess coverage. If we receive any more information on this, either from Marriott Hotels themselves or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week, we have news of a data breach which has affected the details of some 337,384 citizens in Malta. A data breach monitoring service has warned that personal details of 337,384 Maltese citizens have been exposed following a data breach at a local IT company. Under the breach, an international data breach monitoring service last night posted screenshots on Twitter of a MySQL database which includes the names, ID numbers, addresses, phone numbers and dates of birth of a number of Maltese citizens. The data appears to have been breached from the service of Maltese IT company C Planet IT Solutions from a folder called Voting Document System. We have asked the company and the Maltese Information and Data Protection Commissioner for a statement. Neither of them have got back to us by the time that we have gone to broadcast. But if we hear any news from them in the next week or so, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.